All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for joining us here today. Uh, this is Greg Lois, I'm the managing partner of the eponymous law firm, Lois Law Firm. And I am joined today by my partner and co-founder, John Marzola. Good morning. Oh, actually, good afternoon, Craig. Good afternoon. Hope everybody uh, had a nice weekend as we uh, get ready for the holiday season to bear down upon us. Um, I'm pretty much ready. Yeah, I'm I, pretty much I already ready. got your gift. You're getting a book this year. Yeah, and um, thanks a lot for that, Craig. Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, this is the book. Um, here you go. <laughs> I'm going to do this live. Uh, if you haven't received it yet, everybody out there, uh, in the mail to you, if you're a client, is our most recent handbook. This is not yours. This is John's. Merry Thanks, Christmas. buddy. All right. Uh, we also have a Jersey handbook, which has been put in the mail to clients. And uh, our calendar. Um, John, this was going to be your stocking stuffer, but I'm doing it live right here, right now. Uh, I tell you, with friends like you, Greg, who needs enemies? <laughs> Let's I mean, make this happen. Uh, Merry Christmas. Buddy. Thanks, buddy. You're the best. Uh, all right, so if you haven't received those yet in the mail and you are a client, please let us know because we'll make sure you get them. Uh, as you can see, today's handout really was just adapted. It's uh, chapter 18 of the handbook, which focuses on what our topic today, which is reimbursement and subrogation in New York. This is totally live, uh, so please feel free to ask us questions. I was typing into the chat at the beginning of this um, that this is live, and we look forward to your questions. This is a pretty tough topic today, and I'd be surprised if there aren't some interesting questions uh, surrounding the issue of subrogation and reimbursement. I would say after denials, and you do intakes as well, uh, this is probably uh, the second hottest question I'm always getting. And the question I get is, hey, um, usually it's a multi-state accident, and it's can I subrogate, yep. or do I get reimbursement, and which state's laws apply? Along right. those lines, fair? Right, and I think it's it's definitely one of the more complicated things um, we deal with on a day to day basis in New York, and it's complicated because uh, there's a lot of unknowns, right? We you have to figure out first and foremost, you know, is there is there an action, or should there be an action? Because a lot of times, um, whoa, 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 let me change the slides here because you're getting ahead of us. All uh, right, you're right there. Okay, okay, sorry, I'll slow my roll. <laughs> right. But you, basically what we want to figure out first is like, was there an actual tortfeasor? Is there a possibility for there to be a civil claim in connection with the very same accident that we're dealing with in workers' compensation? Mm -hmm. And I personally find, you know, the type of accident that are like major red flags, hey, this could be, there could be a third party action, which could lead to reimbursement or subrogation. If it's a motor vehicle accident um, or an accident um, that, you can easily identify there to be an, another party other than the employer. So not just your slip and falls in the office or, you know, or slept on, you know, I was walking and I bent down to pick up a piece of paper and those sorts of actions, there's not going to be a, you know, another pocket to deep, do a deep dive and, you know, get some uh, third party settlement out of, which is where those funds are derived from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the red flags are certainly a motor vehicle accident, uh, an employee who's on someone else's premises, you know, maybe not our premises. Yep. Um, travel time injuries are, you know, they had a slip and a fall in an airport or, yep. or even a hotel when they're at a conference or out selling or whatever it is they do. So, you know, I think when cases come in, I mean, one thing that we're going to do, and it's built into our legal action plans, really, so our clients are very familiar with it, is we put a, 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 a little subheading in there that says, hey, is there a potential 
for a third party action here. And, and you know, we're thinking about that right from the beginning. Yeah, it's one of the first questions I asked myself, is there a possibility that whether it's down the road or you know, right now, can we somehow get back some money at the end of this case? Mm -hmm. um, and everyone should be thinking about that because it can be quite substantial depending on the nature of the accident. Sure, all right, so uh, let's talk about the right to reimbursement. So uh, we're gonna talk about reimbursement first and then we're gonna talk about subrogation. So this um, presentation that we're gonna do, this conversation we're gonna have, is gonna be broken into two parts. The first part is just reimbursement because under the statute, and this is quite simple, you absolutely have an opportunity uh, for reimbursement. If you have paid out workers' compensation benefits, and that could be lost time benefits, medical benefits, or any type of permanent residual disability, whether in New York that's an SLU or a loss of wage earning capacity award, uh, even a Section 32 resolution, you can preserve your right to reimbursement. And it's dollar for dollar less uh, the amount of litigation costs and expense. Now, uh, if there is a third-party case pending, really your role as a risk professional, as an attorney, in my opinion, it's we're monitoring that case. We're just making sure that it's moving forward. A lot of our clients have specialized units, units within their uh, either TPA or insurance carrier um, setup uh, to make sure that that civil action is proceeding. Uh, the way we would do it here in the office would be to monitor e-case or e-courts, uh, which is the civil version of e-case, yep. uh, and just make sure that it's moving forward. Now, it's pretty simple when we talk about how much we get back, right? Uh, if the civil award or the civil settlement is more than we paid out workers' comp benefits, we're getting everything. That's less, nice. Which is nice. I mean, we're looking for this. Right. Less the cost of litigation. Uh, when the uh, the civil action or the third-party settlement is for less than we've paid out in lost time, indemnity, uh, and medical benefits, uh, we're only going to get back a proportional amount of what we expended. And of course, we are then, if we have any obligation to pay ongoing workers' compensation benefits, and that could be medical, that could be lost time, or that could be permanency, we're going to pay it out at a reduced rate, basically at a credited rate. Um, now, most of the time, when that's going to happen, when we're going to get that credited rate going forward, we find that it's pretty easy to either resolve it on a global basis with a Section 32, or sometimes even take a straight dismissal, depending on how much money would be moving and how much that credit is. Right. And, it, you know, it, it's much more easily uh, identifiable when the case has already been settled, um, but the third party was going on. Mm -hmm. It gets a little bit more complicated, of course, when there's an ongoing benefit to the claimant uh, mm -hmm. at the time when the third party case is ready to settle. Yeah. Um, but these things are all eventually knowable once we get some of the basic um, the basics uh, that we're gonna need to plug in our formulas, which would include, of course, the amount of the settlement, mm -hmm. the amount of indemnity, the amount of medical we've already paid, uh, the attorney fee, and any disbursements, you know, those are usually quite minimal, I find. Um, but, you know, all that information needs to be uh, determined. And then from there, we can eventually figure out what we're going to be able to get back. And I don't mean to go backwards, Greg. I know you usually like to well, go forward keep on going. this. Keep going. Come on. No, no, no. But I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that, that um, when you Section 32 a case, that those dollars can go towards the lien as well. Oh, yeah. I think sometimes um, the other, you know, the claimant's counsel just blows right past that in our agreements that, that, that the amount that we sell our cases for is lienable, that the carrier can get their portion of that back at the end of the settlement. Now, every now and then, I, I do get some resistance to that, and they'll say, well, wait a minute, I'm not agreeing to that in, in my settlement, but 
by and large, uh, they let it go. And at the end of the day, clients are very you know, pleasantly surprised to learn that they're going to actually get back a portion of what they've already settled that case for. So again, yeah. I'm sorry to go back. No, it's a good point. But, and that's one thing I think that's good to point out as a practice tip, a practice pointer, because practically speaking, you're right. If you've section 32 something, really, it's not reimbursable except for, but for, in almost every section 32 resolution we've ever done, we put it in the settlement right. language. We say section 29 applies to this money that I'm paying you as a lump sum dismissal. Uh, so practice tip, I, I think if you're not our client and you're watching this webinar and you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, do we do that? Take a look at one of your section 32 resolutions and say, wait a second, are we still reserving our rights? Because I think you still can and you should because you can get that money back. And uh, that's a good uh, segue into what we're going to talk about now, which is how we maximize reimbursement. Because, you know, what you mentioned is, hey, there's a formula. I need to know what's the benefits we paid in the comp action. I need to know what's the total settlement in the civil action. I need to know what's the cost of litigation in that civil right. settlement. And then I can calculate for you what your maximum reimbursement is. But we all know that's the easy part. <laughs> the actual hard part is uh, once we've maybe told the risk professional, the adjuster, claims manager, hey, here's what we think you can get back a million dollars. Now you've got plaintiff's counsel on the phone with the risk professionals telling them crazy things, such as, um, well, I'm gonna abandon this civil action completely. It's such a piece of garbage, unless you guys come down on your reimbursement to me. Right. right. Oh, they're always looking to see what see what they can get out of having to reimburse. Mm -hmm. And they'll always say, hey, look, it's a third, a third, a third. That's that's the formula right. for you. That's what I always do. And you know, you, you know, I just let that go in one ear out the other. I mean, you know, yeah. they'll try anything to try and get out from, you know, having well, let's, to I mean, let's be very clear. Let's slow down there because that's yeah. a very important point. That there is no statute or case law that says it's a third, a third, a third. Right. There is no need for our clients to waive their total lien. That's just something that, uh, you know, kind of a rule of thumb, particularly in very small settlements. Yep. You know, a little 20 grander, 30 grander settlements that are really not going to move the needle. Yeah. And in the past, it's been kind of like, okay, you know, we'll, there's more compromise, it seems, on those than the bigger settlements where we're not just doing a third, a third, a third out of, out of, out of hand. Definitely. Well, when you see the small settlements, those are like the rare instances where, you know, we might get back to the drawing board and say, okay, well, here's what we can absolutely demand to get right. back. But in the interest of, um, you know, making sure that they go forward with this settlement and that we're going to get something back off that 20,000 or even that 10,000 or, you know, it wasn't a really serious accident. There really wasn't much negligence. Mm -hmm. um, those are the instances where you, you might want to think about, okay, do we want to like play real hardball here and say, nope, we're taking back every last dollar or do we want to negotiate it just a little bit, just in order to ensure that, uh, you know, that the settlement goes through and they don't, you know, threaten to abandon the claim or something crazy right. like it's, that. It's typically nonsense. Um, you know, the other side of maximizing reimbursement is really making sure that the plaintiff's attorney, the plaintiff's counsel, is doing everything they needed to do to get the most money in that uh, third-party case. You know, this is one of those moments where, as defense attorneys, all of a sudden, we're aligned with plaintiff's attorneys. Right. We're their best friends oh, sometimes, yeah. you know? Uh, and a couple of ways that's worked out is, first of all, like, we're doing hundreds of cases a year. They might be doing tens of cases a year. Right. So this is an instance where we could come to them and be like, well, really, I see that you're willing to accept $100,000, but really, this accident in, in Brooklyn, you really should be getting $300,000. And we'll come to them and we'll say, really, I expect you to beef this up. You should be doing better than this. Right? Yeah, I like to do a little due diligence. Um, when, once we know who third-party counsel is, mm -hmm. um, you know, you see the same attorneys kind of again a and lot. again. Yeah. And, you know, in a lot of instances, I can tell right away, well, here's a guy, you know, he's 
he likes to settle his cases quick and early. Mm -hmm. um, he goes after big exposure cases, and he figures, all right, look, if I can just get a, get a really bad accident and get out of this in, you know, in a year or less and take my fee, that's all he's interested in. Conversely, you know, when they've really hired a, a good firm that they're going to do their diligence, I might be inclined to say, you know, I don't have to stay on top of him as much mm -hmm. or she as much. You know, they're they're gonna we know that they're gonna get the very best settlement for their clients, and mm -hmm. you know, as a result, I don't need to do much more than just check in periodically to say, hey, how's it going? Do we have mm -hmm. a, you know, is it getting set for trial? Mm -hmm. um, but again, be careful <laughs> of running into a ham and egger who is not doing everything he should be doing to ensure that his client gets uh, the most amount of money out of third party settlement. Right. And we've gone so far as to uh, actually recommend experts for them sure. to retain in their cases. Uh, we've done things like put together the medicals for them, uh, create medical index and say, look, my paralegal will do this. Make sure you have the complete medicals to give to your doctors. You're getting a better report. Um, and we have also gone to the mediations or conciliations or settlement conferences yep. with the purpose of sort of explaining to everybody there, because often the parties at those conferences, the plaintiff's attorney, the defense attorney, and oftentimes the judge, they're not experts in workers' comp, and they don't really understand sometimes exactly how our lien works or what we're entitled yeah. to. So it is useful for us to be there. All right, so that's a little bit about reimbursement. I'm coming over here to the questions. Just give me one sec, I just wanna see. Uh, oh good, we're starting to see we're getting some questions. Uh, I see it's one of our own associates who seems to be asking a lot of these questions. People, if you're watching there, out there, uh, and you've got questions about subrogation or reimbursement issues that you're facing, uh, please feel free to ask them. Uh, we only have a couple more slides. We're gonna talk about subrogation, so start typing in your questions now. Um, all right, let's talk about subrogation. First of all, the first question we get is, can we subrogate? Answer, yes. What is subrogation? It is stepping into the shoes and acting as the plaintiff on behalf of the plaintiff. This is the situation where we are now prosecuting the case, essentially, in the shoes of the claimant in the workers' compensation case. We are gonna go after the money for that. Um, in, in general, we have the same rights and limitations that that plaintiff has. There's no special rules that apply to us as a workers' compensation carrier or, or employer uh, in, in pursuing those actions. Fair? Right. And you know, you'd be surprised. You you might be asking yourself, well, why why would we have to be doing this? But uh, you know, believe it or not, um, sometimes these injured employees are not perhaps the most well-versed people and, mm -hmm. and don't understand like that there was even a possibility that they could have brought this claim. Mm -hmm. So. This is again for the cases where there, there's an absolute viable tortfeasor out there that for whatever reason a claim hasn't been brought mm -hmm. um, and you know eventually um, there comes a time where we'll, we'll have to say to ourselves, all right, it doesn't look like he or she, the injured employee that is, is going to make a move here, so let's right. do it for them. Or they don't want to. Maybe the tortfeasor that injured them is somebody they know or somebody they continue to do business with. Mm -hmm. or there's you know some other barrier that's standing in yeah. there. Um, just very quickly, yeah, we can subrogate any claim against any actual tortfeasor. We can subrogate any kind of derivative medical malpractice claim, and we have provided opinions and, in fact, retained experts in order to do that. We can subrogate a derivative legal malpractice claim against their own um, in, uh, attorney. Uh, there can be circumstances in New York uh, under its grave injury exception where the employer might have to contribute uh, as a uh, in a third-party settlement, uh, but not directly back to us, the carrier. Um, okay, uh, one little wrinkle about subrogation in New York, and this is one where uh, this is really something to leave on counsel's plate. We need to provide notice to the plaintiff that we intend to take their right and step into their shoes uh, in advance. And that notice has to be provided in writing and 30 days 
prior to the expiration, prior to us actually filing a subrogation action. Right. Which means at the latest, it needs to be filed 30 days before the expiration of the statute of limitations. Right. And I don't recommend waiting that long. No. I mean, you can, but, um, you know, <laughs> no, I don't want to play that, that game. That, that, that can get you in some hot water and put unnecessary pressure. Um, realistically, what we're really trying to accomplish in many instances with subrogation is to awaken the claimant that they can do this or should mm -hmm. be doing this. Um, we're more than happy to hand it back off to them if, you know, by putting them on that notice, they go out, they get an attorney, they file their claim. Terrific. You know, that that in many ways is the most effective way of yeah, subrogating. Let them use their time, their effort, their right. energy, their blood, their treasure pursuing that claim. Um, all right. Uh, a couple more limitations. One, no recovery against first party benefits. Uh, no recovery against UIM, underinsured motorist or uninsured motorist benefits. Again, those are considered first party benefits. Um, there's no um, recovery against the first $50,000 in first party motor vehicle benefits, um, except for there's some exceptions to that in commercial yeah. accident cases. And again, we must give the claimant one year to bring their action. Right. So there's a couple of limitations there. Now, the other limitations and the real problems are mainly cooperation. This is someone who didn't want to bring the claim on their own. Right. Uh, now we're stepping into their shoes and doing it for them. They're not usually the most cooperative clients in my experience. And also there's a circumstance where maybe they're unrepresented in the workers' comp claim because you don't need to have an attorney in workers' comp world. Right. And now suddenly I'm the defense counsel in the workers' comp claim. But then in the civil action, I'm representing them and yeah. their interest. A little awkward. It's not more than <laughs> awkward. awkward. So usually we have to withdraw from that. <laughs> yeah. Or it, I, to yeah. me, it, there's at least the perception of a conflict. There. Yeah, so by the time by the time we get to that point, um, you know that claimant probably you know is not our best fan. You know they're not probably they take it a little personally that we're trying to get their benefits reduced or cut off or, God forbid, get them back to work. Mm -hmm. um, so you know they're probably a little reluctant. To want to work with us together, but you know, eventually they should hopefully understand that we're we're here. They have rights that they should be pursuing. Um, and again, if nothing else, maybe that prompts them to go out that day, pick up the phone. Right, it should stir them up because at the end of the day, we're not there to recover the most amount of money we can. We're just there to recover the money to cover what we've expended. Right, right, because that's the that's what we're after. Right, we're not going after pain damages you know, um, extraordinary awards, we don't really care. As long as our reimbursable amount gets reimbursed, we're out. just want to get back uh, what we're rightfully entitled to recover from what we've already put out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that there is a big difference between that and trying to, you know, we're not getting a windfall here. We're just right. trying to get something back. All right. Just uh, like I'm not going to give you back uh, my Christmas gifts here, Greg. I just want to <laughs> let you know I'm going to bring these home with me, all right? Good, good. I appreciate right. that. I spent a lot of time making that. Because, all right. so. Home handmade gifts better than I understand. You, know, than you buy at the store. All right, uh, let's go to some questions here. We have a lot of people listening, and I hope it's not just our associate uh, who is playing uh, stump the chump with the bosses here today. Uh, let's see what else. So let's go to questions. Let's bring them up. Okay, let's begin. Look, I see a bunch of questions in here, so this is good. Good, 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 good. All right, just give me a second. This is not popping up over there. All right, great. Okay, so here we go. Uh, Eric asks a great question. How frequently does the claimant attorney reduce their one third to something else? Is it common to ask? So I'm gonna presume what you really mean here is a uh, claimant's attorney who wants to do a one third, one third, one third. Yeah. How frequently are they backing off of that? Very infrequently. I mean, they truly believe that, you know, 
that's you know it's not codified it's not a statute there's no right. cases that say it it's just the way things are done and that's how they generally operate i mean they tend to think that taking anything less than a third uh is like uh committing a, a crime against humanity or something but they're generally speaking not very willing to do it i mean there have been a couple of examples where they'll just maybe do something you know they'll, they'll take something like 30 percent instead of the 33rd but yeah. generally speaking they're 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 in it for that you know that third right i mean that's their fee yeah. and generally we leave it alone uh we're trying to play with the other two-thirds and make sure we get that right. back um all right so jill asked a question how do you initiate starting the rapport with third-party attorneys? So that's a great question because we do something here that's very specific uh, to get that started. So in every case where we think that there is a potential for reimbursement or subrogation, every case, the same day the case comes in, right? And you handle the majority of the intakes yeah. in this office. Uh, well, the same day the case comes in, we're making sure that we send out a notice to the claimant, to their attorney, to any third-party attorney that we are aware of, saying, yeah. hello, we see the potential for a third-party action here. Please uh, accept this as notice that we've got a lien or we're going to make our reimbursement demand against you. If you're not the attorney who's representing him in that civil action, please tell us who is because I want to serve this notice on them. And we get that conversation going. Right, and that's part of from intake. Right, that's part and parcel day. why we send those Section 29 rights. We don't have to do that. It's not as if we're going to waive the right mm -hmm. by doing that. But I think it's a good way to just right out of the gates let them know, hey, we're on top of this. We're going to be coming back around, right. uh, and let's just get let's start the conversation now. Like, um, we'll be following up with you on a periodic basis. Um, but I think it's a good idea to start the rapport as early as possible. Now we have one client who says, Greg, uh, our TPA has a special section that does this, so we don't want you pursuing that or talking even about reimbursement. All right, so we have handling instructions here that say, yeah. please don't do that. Uh, but in general, that's how we do it. Uh, Jill seems to add a, an add-on question here. Do we have to wait for the claimant to initiate a third-party claim? No. No, we don't have to wait for them at all. I mean, if a year has elapsed from the date of loss, in New York, we can then initiate the claim on our own right. with 30 days notice. And I also will sometimes reach out to the claimant's counsel in the workers' compensation case and say, hey, are you talking to your client? Um, what are you thinking? Uh, are you, does your office handle? Because a lot of times their office will handle both, and mm -hmm. so they won't farm it it's out. It's actually really firm. rare for them to handle both sides of it. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, if, if we don't see, if we're sensing that, you know what, they don't seem to be moving um, the ball down the field here in terms of getting a third party going, I mean, I, I will not hesitate to call their workers' compensation attorney and, and ask them point blank, um, where do we stand in this? And is, you know, is there something we don't know that there's a barrier to them doing it so mm -hmm. we can already start put earmarking that one? We're going to be subrogating that one down the road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Christine J asked the question, must the settlement offer be accepted um, and, and be firm prior to the carrier granting consent for the settlement? So that's an interesting question. So first, Yes, we do have to consent to a third-party settlement where we have a lien or an interest. Um, do we have to, does the offer have to be accepted before we grant consent? No. Uh, typically, consent would be contingent on our, or I'm sorry, accepting the settlement would be contingent on our consent. Right. Now, the claimant doesn't have to get our consent, right? By going ahead and not getting our consent, they now have two options. One, forego the right to future workers' compensation benefits. That's always nice. <laughs> and two, they can go into uh, Supreme Court and file an order to show cause saying uh, the carrier should have, we should be forced to give consent. So those are options. 
both of those options are pretty rare. Uh, it's very rare for an order to show cause to be filed, and that's typically where our client carriers really slow in giving consent because right. we're still analyzing yeah. how good the offer is or not uh, good the offer is. Uh, but in general, that's extraordinarily rare. No, I get it. They threaten that a lot. Like, you know what? Don't make me go get an order to show cause. Um, and that's more, like you said, it's in the in the um, arena where, for whatever reason, uh, there's still analysis and evaluation going on from our carrier client, and they're just not ready to give consent yet. And you know, no matter how many times these third-party attorneys jump up and down and, and try to pressure you into giving that consent, at the end of the day, we hold all the cards there, uh, and you know, we'll give it to them when when the client's ready to, and not a moment before. Uh, James asked a question. Does loss transfer apply to the first 50,000 when the vehicle's over 6,500 pounds or a vehicle for hire? So what Jim's talking about here is that in general, motor vehicle benefits, uh, motor vehicle policies uh, between private parties contain uh, a first party benefit and that first party benefit is the first $50,000 and medical treatment. Uh, so typically, in general, that is carved out from our reimbursable interest. We can't really go and get that first $50,000. So that's what James is asking about. And there are exceptions to that. And the exceptions are where it's involving a commercial vehicle involved in livery or transporting goods, or there's a commercial vehicle that's for hire or weighs over a certain amount, 6,500. It doesn't have to be both. These are ORs. These are all ORs. And so basically you're talking about uh, big Ford trucks, full-size pickup trucks, anything bigger than that are gonna count as a commercial vehicle. And in those cases, there still is the carve out, so you still can't recover against that first $50,000 in benefits issued, uh, but there is a mechanism called loss transfer in which the insurance carriers will then reimburse themselves right. amongst themselves. So essentially it becomes a reimbursable interest or subrecable interest. You just have to go through this extra step of loss transfer. Um, whenever it's a motor vehicle case, we're always looking about whether those exceptions apply, so yeah. you know, whether it can uh, work or not. All right. Uh, all right, we have time for one more question, and this one comes from Anna, and Anna says, and this is a very long question, so I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. She goes, uh, she brings up a question that kind of is compound. It has two issues. One, New York motor vehicle accident, New York resident, but a New Jersey policy and claim gets filed in New York, and then she says, and also, by the way, this is a Lyft or Uber or taxi driver. Okay, so now we're starting to talk about the types of questions we get a lot, and these kind of questions are often asking us to analyze which state's statutory scheme for reimbursement or subrogation applies, okay? And in general, the answer in both New York and New Jersey is this. Irrespective of where the accident took place, the reimbursement scheme, whether that's Section 29 in New York or Section 40 in New Jersey, uh, which reimbursement scheme takes place is based on where the workers' compensation benefits were issued under. So if you issue, even if the person lives in Florida and the accident takes place in Canada, if the workers' compensation benefits are issued under a New York workers' comp policy and in accordance with New York workers' compensation laws, in general, Section 29 is going to apply, okay? Same thing with New Jersey. Uh, if the New Jersey resident uh, employee is uh, injured in uh, California and the car is registered in New York and the insurance policy on the car is Michigan, it doesn't really matter if New Jersey workers' compensation benefit are issued to the uh, petitioner, as they call them in New Jersey, then section 40, the New Jersey section of the statute applies. So that's generally how it works. So we can walk through Anna, this um, fact pattern where you're saying uh, he filed in New Jersey, but he's a New York motor vehicle accident, he's a New York resident, you know, and we could, 
go there. But that's where we start to talk about, yeah, these are the moments where you should call counsel and have us walk you through exactly which state we believe would have the reimbursable interest, how it's going to be applied, and then uh, start to predict, hey, here's the maximum reimbursement amount and how that works. So I think that was a good question to sort Very of wrap up. Very good question, up. and I'm glad, I'm glad you answered it since uh, you are our <laughs> re resident expert in both New York and New yeah, Jersey. That's good. Now, our, to our associate who asked us a whole bunch of questions in here trying to stump us, uh, okay, yeah, we're going to get you later. Okay, yeah. We got your name. Okay, It pops up on our thing over here. All right. So uh, that was reimbursable interest. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, it's an interesting topic. We're always happy to answer any questions you might have about this topic offline, uh, email, phone calls, any specific case things to discuss with you. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, I thank you, John, for joining me today. Uh, to everybody, if we don't see you next week, uh, Merry Christmas and have a happy new year. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Have a nice week.